Welcome to the LSE and um, welcome to the festival um, Shape the World um, with the event on the rise of modern Europe. Um, a quick announcement, you can tweet about the event at, with hashtag LSE Festival or hashtag Shape the World. Um, my name is Dina Gusenova. I'm um, from the Department of International History, um, and I would just like to say that if you expected to see my colleague Danielle Sands here, she cannot be here because she has joined the strike, um, which has now um, covered 74 um, UK universities, and um, I suppose we, I, we're grateful for colleagues um, like her to highlight issues that um, relate to casualization um, uh, and pay, which is what motivated her to... Um, go on strike, but she very much regrets not being here. Um, the event today uh, will um, address a theme which um, uh, is probably familiar to, to many of you and associated with the, the subject of disenchantment, um, the phrase that um, the German sociologist Max Weber used to describe um, the, the, this, this uh, feeling of a loss of magic, of a feeling of magic um, that, that governed Europeans of, of his age. Um, and this was not only true of, um, of scholars uh, of, of German origin like Max Weber, but um, in 1919, um, the French poet and essayist Paul Valéry also reflected um, on a European world which seemed alive but suddenly also appeared to witness its own end. I quote, we, we later civilizations, we too now know that we are mortal. Um, and the speakers today will address this question, this theme of Europe's identity in relation to modernity and the question whether um, it, and when um, it had a sense of its ending. Um, I will introduce them um, one after, <laughs> uh, after the other. They will speak uh, each for about 10 minutes, and then we hope that we'll have a discussion um, with you. Um, so uh, Professor Helen Parrish, who will speak first, um, uh, is Professor of Early Modern History in the Department of History at the University of Reading. Um, and her main research interests um, lie in early modern religious and cultural history, and particularly on the Reformation in, um, in England and Europe. And this is the subject that uh, will allow, uh, allow her to illuminate this, this question about how we got to uh, the moment in modernity and to what extent this Weberian phrase of disenchantment um, might apply to this long, long view. Um, after her, we will be addressed by uh, Professor Simon Glendinning, who is a professor in European philosophy and the head of uh, the European Institute here at the LSE. Um, he has a, a DPhil and a BPhil in philosophy from Oxford University and previously has worked at the universities of Kent um, and Reading. Um, and his current research interests focus on um, European identities and publications. Um, and he, he will speak about the more modern period and, and about this, this question of um, to what extent the idea of magic actually did survive in the modern age in the European consciousness. And then finally, last but not least, uh, Darian Meacham, who is assistant professor um, of philosophy um, in, um, uh, at Maastricht University. Um, and uh, his previous projects have um, examined the idea of Europe um, in the work um, of the Czech philosopher and dissident Jan Patichka. Um, and he's also editor-in-chief of the Journal of the British Society for Phenomenology. Um, and... Um, and true to the, the subject, the, the, the interest in phenomenology, he will speak about the emergence of the modern subject, the sense of self, uh, European self, sense of self, particularly in connection with processes of industrialization and nationalization. Um, so you will see that uh, there are kind of a wide range of periods that will be covered here, also a wide range of subjects in terms of thinking about what it means to be modern and European. Um, and I very much look forward to our speakers.
Very nice to be here, and, and thank you all for coming. And in what is probably the most often quoted phrase, or at least one of the most often quoted phrases in the histories of post-Reformation Europe, Max Weber, um, as we heard, argued that the fate of our times is characterized by um, rationalization and by intellectualization, and above all, by the disenchantment of the world. The disenchantment of the world, he argued, was the cornerstone of modernity, especially European Protestant modernity. The story of the link between the Protestant Reformation, disenchantment, and the modern European that we're thinking about today runs something like this. As a result of the Reformation, the route to salvation lay not in sacramental magic, but in faith and in the subjugation of the will to God. Once deprived of its soteriological function, human action was at the most basic level secularized. Specific religious actions, commitments, and rituals lost their meaning and lost their function. They came to be categorized not only as inessential, but also as irrational. Human action no longer sought to influence spirits or supernatural beings, but rather turned to a more intellectualized worldview, one in which God was less visible and less active in the operations of the world. The emergence of what might best be described as a rational religiosity undermined the material imminence of the holy and encouraged or was encouraged by iconoclasm, the rejection of objects that were argued to act as a focus for divine and supernatural power. Via this desacralization and disenchantment, it's argued, came modernization in a teleological narrative of a transition from Western Christianity from a world of superstition and enchantment to the secular modernity that we apparently see around us today, although I suspect that my partners um, at the front may have different views on this. So the relationship between religion and the supernatural and reason or empiricism remains very much alive as a topic for debate and discussion. But the neat and tidy model set out by Weber and set out by generations of historians since has long since been abandoned um, in their analyses of belief. We are encouraged instead as historians of the Reformation and post-Reformation religious culture to recognize religious belief and belief in the supernatural as a central and enduring part of modern European history, evident in the rise of religious institutions in the modern world, popular religiosity, and the practice of magic and witchcraft and the enthusiasm for such things in the 20th and 21st centuries. So did Weber's model of disenchantment fail, or was it simply delayed, held back? Was it a complex set of processes rather than that single line of progress that Weber hinted at? Did the belief in the supernatural ebb and flow rather than being something that could be turned off like a tap? First, perhaps, we need to interrogate the assumption in Weber's model that medieval and early modern belief was exactly the kind of enchantment from which he assumed that modern Europe had somehow been cured. This itself is no easy task, as Ewan Cameron notes in his analysis of superstition, religion, and reason. Enchanted Europe was punctuated by ideas that occupy a variety of spaces that range from the idiosyncratic to a much more well-developed alternative cosmology. 
and for which, which for that reason defy the kinds of definition and compartmentalization that Weber encouraged us to put in place. Some mentalities, Cameron tells us, are local in their origins and meanings, others global, some derived from folklore, some derived from within Christianity. But wherever these beliefs came from, the presence of superstition and the danger of superstition lay very much in the eye of the beholder, um, certainly before the Reformation and all the more so afterwards. Um, superstition was a polemical term, a term of abuse, a term that was applied subjectively and energetically. So the dichotomy between the enchanted Middle Ages and rational European modernity, which relies on a vocabulary which was often polemical and judgmental, may well be potent, but a lot of historians of post-Reformation religious culture would argue that it's almost certainly ill-conceived. We can see a clear sense of the challenge behind all this um, in Keith Thomas's magisterial volume, Religion and the Decline of Magic, um, first published in 1971, so about to celebrate its 50th birthday on the shelves of every library and scholar of, of late medieval and early modern religion. What Thomas proposed was an alternative model of beliefs and mentalities in early modern Europe, one in which not just the faith of the church but also popular religion, magic, astrology, ghosts, fairies, witches, and demons loomed large. And they didn't just loom large accidentally. They were imbued with a social function and with an intellectual coherence that rescued them from the peripheries of debate. The answer to the question of disenchantment lies as much in these beliefs as it does in the history of the church. For Thomas, this was a worldview that made sense. It wasn't something that could be dismissed as mere ignorance. To attack such beliefs or the doctrines and the devotional practices of the medieval church as superstitious excuse me, um, was not the same as to articulate a worldview that was secularized. It wasn't the same as to provide the model of desacralization and disenchantment that Weber associated with Protestantism. So as Bob Scribner, historian of the German Reformation, reminds us, Catholic and Protestant in post-Reformation Europe shared the cosmological belief that the natural world was dependent for its subsistence on the sustaining power of the supernatural, which could intervene to interrupt natural processes and insert itself into the space and time of nature. The Reformation had not destroyed the supernatural, it had simply refashioned and repurposed it. As Scrivener and others have suggested, the initial radicalism of the Reformation and its thought on saints, on images, on pilgrimages, on sacred objects, did not in the event turn out to be a defining characteristic of post-Reformation religious culture and devotional practice. Early modern evangelicalism might have done its best to remove ghosts and fairies and miracle and magic from the devotional landscape. But look around us and demons and witches were very much part of post-Reformation religious and social culture and early modern natural histories were replete with stories of unicorns and dragons and providential sea creatures. As Alexandra Walsham's work has shown, energetic evangelical polemic against the idolatrous objects of religious culture might actually perversely come to serve as a catalogue of those, of those very things that it sought to condemn, preserving their memory, albeit by mocking their meaning. 
Rather than being disenchanted, reformed religious culture continued to be shaped by diverse interactions between the survival, the manipulation, the transposition, and the construction of a new form of the sacred. The supernatural had not been rejected, but rather reformed and reinterpreted in a discursive process of linguistic and cultural exchange. As Walsham points out, this is a form of disenchantment that might be better presented as a series of cycles of desacralization and resacralization rather than a unidirectional linear model. So from this, it's clear that almost any seductively simple model will create more questions than it, than it can answer. If the range of beliefs discussed by Keith Thomas, Bob Scrivener, and Walsham, for example, both made sense of and had a useful function, why is it that they ceased to have such a hold over the European mind? If these things made sense, if they explained life, the universe, and everything, why did they cease to dominate the European intellectual landscape? Michael Hunter's recent book, The Decline of Magic, Britain in the Enlightenment, observes that the models set out by Weber and to some extent by Thomas need to be superseded, need to be replaced by a model of cultural change in which people just made up their minds and then grasped at arguments to substantiate their preconceived ideas. The responses of Europeans to disenchantment come from within them. They're not shaped by the dialogues and debates of the theologians. Here, then, we're perhaps looking less at disenchantment as the impact of conscious decision-making and more at the kind of language that was used by Brad Gregory in his study of the unintended reformation, the subtitle, How a Religious Revolution Secularized Society. Gregory's starting point is that supersessionist models of historical change, based on the assumption that modern ideas steadily replaced medieval ones, is fundamentally flawed. His is a history of the Reformation with the idea of progress, betterment, left out of it. In Gregory's work, the Reformation did not lead to the destruction of ignorance. It did not lead to a process of disenchantment. Um, and it did not lead to atheism eventually, or at least intentionally. Unintentionally, yes, the Reformation made God irrelevant, but not in its own right, but because it was the first paving stones in a twisting path that led to the secularization of knowledge. And here I think the emphasis needs to be very much on the twisting nature of that path, because it's in these twists and turns that we can see the critical questions on which we need to focus, and we can find the best stories to, to tell about them. So perhaps we need to consider whether the tone of this discussion needs to be more about disillusionment rather than disenchantment, a damning critique of modernity rather than one that celebrates it as the ultimate triumph of Weber's teleology. And this is the problem, I would argue, with the disenchantment model itself. To be a compelling narrative of progress towards modernity, disenchantment actually needs to sit above and immune from the potential impact of a broader range of religious, political, social, economic, intellectual, and natural events. The problem there is that by putting disenchantment outside that context, we're depriving it of the very things that gave it meaning in the first place. And I think this is something that my colleagues will probably want to pick up on in the, the presentations that lie ahead. Thank you.
Uh, so now Professor Simon Glendinning. Hello and um, uh, welcome to you all. Thank you for coming. Uh, I too uh, want to explore whether the idea of disenchantment and especially the elimination from our lives of magic uh, is a good way of understanding Europe's modernity and indeed our most modern ways of thinking. And I'm going to be taking my cue from some extraordinary remarks by the Austrian philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, written in the early 1930s. He was at that time beginning to prepare notes for a book that would become what's published as Philosophical Investigations. And during that time, in the early 30s, he started reading a book called The Golden Bough by the British anthropologist James Fraser. Now, that book, The Golden Bough, couldn't have been more in tune with the uh, disenchanted modern sensibility. Europe, as Fraser saw it, had broken with myth and magic and was forging a new culture for itself based on reason and science. Fraser's book represented magic as an attempt to understand natural processes, but in a way that was primitive and inferior an inferior form of science, a form of explanation of phenomena that was just basically an error. Well, Wittgenstein thought that this approach was totally wrong-headed and wrote some fascinating remarks on Fraser in the manuscript for the book he was working on. And these remarks, Wittgenstein's remarks on Fraser, form a very sort of little dense ten-page part of his manuscript, which begins with a short passage which shows him to be considering starting his book, which became Philosophical Investigations, with considerations about magic. Astonishingly, he crossed them out. Uh, he didn't have them typed up. But we do still have them, because we still have the manuscript with his crossing out. And uh, they have been published, but in un unfortunately in very poor translations, and I've had it retranslated by the uh, professor of German at King's College London, Matthew Bell, uh, for me and for you here. So here are Wittgenstein's introductory remarks where he's thinking about beginning his book. I hope you can see them. I now believe that it would be correct to begin my book with remarks on metaphysics as a kind of magic, whereby, however, I am permitted neither to advocate magic nor to make fun of it. The depth of magic would have to be preserved. Indeed, here the elimination of magic has the character of magic itself. For when back then, I'll explain what he means there, for when back then I began to speak about the world and not about this tree or table, what else was I trying to do but capture something higher in my words. The elimination of magic that's referred to here, that's a central tenet of our modernity. And Wittgenstein's claim is that the effort at elimination of magic itself has the character of magic. And he gives this example from his own work. He says, when back then, he's thinking about the opening of his own first book, The Tractatus. 
There we find these strange references to the world. They go like this, one sentence after another, piling up. The world is all that is the case. The world is the totality of facts, not of things. The world is determined by the facts and that by their being all the facts. Well, how's this a case where the elimination of magic has the character of magic? Wittgenstein, when he's in those introductory remarks to Fraser, he says, for when back then I began to speak about the world and not about this tree or table, what else was I trying to do but capture something higher in my words? What's this to do with the elimination of magic and how does it have the character of magic? Well, it's actually tricky. <laughs> But there's a clue in the German. I'm not going to ask you to follow the German here, but here is the German of that sentence. And it's the last three words, or four words, in meiner Worte bannen. The key word here is bannen. And there are standard German idioms, like this one, which means capture something on canvas. There's the word bannen there. It means paint an idiom for paint something. Uh, however, bannen can also mean to entrance, to charm, to captivate, and even to excommunicate or to exorcise. And it seems then that Wittgenstein is drawing in this sense of Bannon as a magical process to describe what he was doing in those opening <coughs> words to his book. One way to convey that would be to give another kind of rendering of the, this uh, German, what else did I want to do but magically capture something higher in my words. That's more a gloss than a translation, and Professor Bell told me that he couldn't think of an English word that would capture both of these senses of uh, capturing something and perhaps excommunicating or exercising or doing something magic. But he does, Professor Bell does assure me that it's about something higher is being put magically into the words and I think that's right you wind up, whatever Wittgenstein's been doing here, you wind up with words that he wants to capture something higher in them, but I think that's achieved, I think Wittgenstein think that's, that's achieved not by a magical addition, not by as it were some spell over the words that adds something higher to them but a kind of magical subtraction by, in fact, by exorcism. In order to get metaphysics going, and, and that means to get going a discourse that's going to go beyond magical thinking, you have to make the words seem to have something in them that ordinary words, like tree and table, he says, don't have. You capture something higher by exorcising the ordinariness from what are, in the end, just ordinary words. World is an ordinary word, but to make something happen here in metaphysics, something needs to happen, and uh, Bannon brings in the idea, not of putting magic in the words, but capturing something higher in them by magically banishing or exorcising the ordinary from them. They now do this extraordinary work. So the thought here in these opening remarks from Wittgenstein's remarks on Fraser is that magic hasn't gone away. 
even in a text that wants to eliminate it, his early writings wanting to be properly scientific metaphysics rather than uh, some magical poem, a text that wants to affirm, as it were, the disenchantment of our time, the world is all that is the case, the world is the totality of facts, not of things. This in getting beyond an enchanted world of Europe's past. But the thought is, he's now reflecting, is that magic is preserved in the very effort at its elimination. And so the issue for me, when we think about our, our movement into modernity as a movement into an age of disenchantment, is about the survival of magic within that very process. Now, Wittgenstein's uh, 10 pages on Fraser, they're very rich and they cover a lot of ground. But they have, in their reading of our past, of these ancient human beings, uh, nothing of the simplicity of Fraser's modern picture of the movement from then to now, uh, with these primitive, what um, Fraser will call savage humans, with superstitions, pre-scientific beliefs, beliefs... Uh, Fraser thinks that spring from wrong ideas about the physics of things, right? That's Fraser's modern view of, the, of these uh, people of older times. Replaced now by us with rational, scientifically, <coughs> scientifically correct opinions. For Fraser, Wittgenstein notes, magic is really just false physics or false medicine or uh, primitive crude technologies, in contrast to that, Wittgenstein speaks in these 10 pages about the highly cultivated character of the symbolism and language of ancient rites and practices, and he talks about the depth of magic. Indeed, he says, Fraser is much more savage than his savages. And Fraser's account of their observances is, for Wittgenstein, much cruder than the sense of the observances themselves. Wittgenstein speaks of the stupid st superstition in our modern understanding of their thinking, of what he in fact calls their philosophy of the earliest human beings. And he contrasts the narrowness of spiritual life in Fraser with the genuinely religious life of the priest kings that Fraser writes about. Now, Wittgenstein doesn't simply abandon science or uh, ideas of scientific progress but he wants, he says, to distinguish between magical operations and those which um, rest on a false or oversimplified notion of things. And he, he thinks that that's a, a, a distinction one can hold to. He notes, for example, how a man who sticks his knife through a picture of his enemy also cuts his arrow with skill. And he notes, too, that we might kiss the picture of a loved one. So... Wittgenstein says, I wish to say nothing shows our relationship to those savages better than the fact that Fraser has at hand a word as familiar to us as ghost to describe the way these people look at things. And too little is made of the fact that we include the words soul and spirit in our own civilized vocabulary. Compared with this, the fact that we do not believe our soul eats and drinks is a minor detail. So Wittgenstein doesn't advocate magic, he doesn't make fun of it, but nor does he identify it with a kind of science in the way Fraser does. 
It's something else, something deep in human life and something that is still with us. The ghost of magic is still with us, even, even in the efforts we make to eliminate it and to live in a disenchanted world. We are haunted still, one might say, by the spectre of magic. And our rituals of exorcism are not over. We'll see, I, I won't go into other places we see them, but we moderns, we really do not know so well the world that we inhabit. Magic may still be all around us. We are haunted by the ghost of the ghost. And the modern exorcism not only fails to exorcise the ghost, but confirms its presence still with us. Thank you. very much. So after the Reformation as a process of attempting disenchantment and philosophy as re-enchantment, perhaps uh, we'll hear about the emergence of the modern European subject. Um, Darian Meacham. Thanks so much. So it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, in the short time that I have, I want to try and say a few words about the relationship between what we might call, and this is a quote, the cluster of economic and scientific changes since the 17th century end quote, that culminated in the Industrial Revolution and the emergence of a specific type of human subject or individual person or a specific ideal of a human subject or individual person that we've come to understand as the ideal modern subject or the ideal European modern subject. And to an extent, my guide here is the philosopher and sociologist and anthropologist Ernst Gellner, who is best known for his theory of nationalism, which he developed from the 1960s through to his death in 1995. And of course, he was also a professor here at the LSE. So speaking of ghosts, I feel a bit <laughs> haunted at the moment when I sort of clumsily try to invoke his name here. So as a philosopher, I'm interested in sort of very fundamental questions about how it is that human beings experience the world around them but also how it is that we experience ourselves experiencing the world around us. So those are questions about self-reflection on our own experience. I'm interested in questions about what are the parameters of my experiences of the world, but also the parameters of my experiences of myself experiencing the world. How plastic or flexible are the ways that I experience both the world around me and my own self, of course, in experiencing that world? To give you an example of such parameters, to what, to what extent does culture constrain or frame the way that human individuals like myself experience the world and experience ourselves experiencing the world? And to be clear, I'm taking culture in a relatively straightforward sense here, as I quote, a dynamic system of meaning that is shared by a given social group that frames and constrains the members' ways of interpreting experience. So we can already see in the very definition, just general definition of culture, we have an idea that culture constrains or somehow structures the way it is that we experience the world. In the philosophical jargon, we could say that I'm interested in problems concerning human subjectivity or the human subject. At the same time, like many philosophers working in the Netherlands, we can go into why this is the case afterwards maybe, I'm interested in questions about how technology mediates or impacts that first set of questions that I just introduced. And my own particular interest is again somewhat narrower. It has to do with how the technologies that we work with 
in the sense of the technologies that we labor with or those technologies that are involved when we do the things we do when we are employed interact with that first set of questions about human experience and about our own reflexivity upon our own experience. I say this is a narrow interest, but I should also say that we should take that with somewhat of a grain of salt because the scope of what gets often called, quote-unquote, the world of work is very broad and, of course, extends beyond just what we do when we are at our places of work. So what I want to try to propose to you today is that we can understand something about the emergence of this ideal of the modern European subject or the modern European individual by looking historically at the interaction between these two sets of questions that I just introduced. How is it that we experience the world? And how is that experience impacted by the technologies that we work with? We're here to talk about the emergence of modern Europe, and I'm interested in the emergence or the formation of a particular type of individual or human subjectivity. But I think that this question also tells us something or might help us to understand something about where we're going. So also it's a question about the future of modern Europe. Okay, back to Gellner for a moment. Gellner was interested in understanding the phenomenon of nationalism and more specifically the marriage between the institutions or the governing institutions of the state and the idea of a cultural nation in terms of a cultural and political identity and also a general cultural context or framework. He argued that the emergence of this marriage and also the subsequent tensions between the dominant nation states that emerged and the smaller nationalist movements, we still see that tension today in Europe, was closely related to the process of industrialization taken in a very broad sense. So the emergence of not just industrial but also of commercial culture and civilization. In a nutshell, Gellner argued for an affinity between the requirements or demands of emerging commercial and industrial economies and the imposition of national cultures on the populations of what were previously culturally more heterogeneous states. Why? Well, to put it very bluntly or coarsely, commercial and industrial economies required individuals, subjects, persons who were literate, who were able to communicate with one another in context-independent situations, and who were able to talk to strangers who spoke the same language and able to exchange social and professional roles, and so forth. All those requirements that we would currently associate with modern commercial industrial work and economies. This was largely accomplished through national systems of education. But the diffusion of these new national and commercial slash industrial cultures was uneven and created tensions between those who held on to local customs and those being assimilated into newly forming or newly emerging national cultural life. It's interesting that Gellner treated assimilation and being treated fairly as more or less the same thing. To be treated fairly within a new national culture was to be assimilated into it. His thesis can also be understood, I think, as an early articulation of the explanation of contemporary nationalism as being driven by the resentment of those who have lost out in the processes of globalization, i.e. not been assimilated or treated fairly in those processes. Gellner's thesis, of course, refers not to globalization, but to a kind of precursor in the idea of nationalization driven by commercialization. 
What's interesting about Gellner's thesis is that it makes nationalism an essential component of modernization because industrialization or commercialization requires a certain kind of person and that kind of person is formed in certain types of institutions which reproduce, I quote, one common literate and accessible culture. This is, of course, a rather contested point in Gellner's thesis. But what I want to point out here is something slightly different. I want to point out the great similarity between this idea of a national subject capable of what Gellner calls, and I quote, context-free communication, community membership, and acceptability, i.e. a subject that can, I quote again, incorporate and master high national culture, that's Gellner, and what the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor in his seminal 1989 Sources of the Self describes as the ideal of the modern European self. I quote Taylor here, a human agent who is able to remake itself by methodological and disciplined action. What this calls for is the ability to take an instrumental stance to one's given properties, desires, inclinations, tendencies, and habits of thought and feeling so that they can be worked on. If we follow Gellner, both are the consequence of mobility and anonymity of modern society, which free the person, the individual, from stratified social roles and structures. Why this is interesting for me is that at first glance, the two notions of the human person or the human individual here seem somewhat at odds with one another. On the one hand, a homogenized national subject and on the other hand, an increasingly individualized and self-reflective one that focuses, in Michel de Montaigne's formulation, on discovering its own unique form. What Gellner tries to do is to illustrate the material and social conditions in which this paradigmatic idea of the modern European subject is formed. It was the structures of labor, work, and employment that, shall we say, pushed to the fore a certain type of individual or human subject that we now recognize as a kind of rational and indeed European ideal, a notion that I think we can recognize even in the Marxist proletariat, even if that proletariat was meant to free itself from the constraints of the nation and realize its universal role. And so this analysis also points to the contingency or the fragility of this ideal of modern personhood or individuality. In Gellner's analysis, the proliferation of this type of person capable of self-reflection and, to use Taylor's term, working on the self, proliferated within a specific socio-technological context or milieu, and specifically within certain working conditions. These are, of course, subject to change. And as we reflect on the emergence of modern Europe from our position in the midst of a digital and technological transformation, we might also give a thought to the future of the modern European subject and the modern European individual. Thanks. Thank you very much, uh, Darren. I would now like to um, open up to the floor for um, questions. When we've had uh, three very rich presentations on the emergence of uh, the theme, the idea of uh, Europe, Europe's modernity as one of disenchantment, but also the idea of magic haunting um, 
uh, still European subjectivity, or perhaps uh, not haunting necessarily in a bad way. <laughs> anyway, I uh, would like to open to the floor for questions, remarks. Um, thank you very much for interesting and very diverse views. My, uh, it's comments I want to make. Um, you can look at um, the rise of what you might call the modern, modern Europe in terms of its personality. I mean, you can look at it sort of from the point of view of the history of ideas. You can look at it sociologically, as in Lenin's question, who whom, who believes what, where and when and why. You can also look at it from the point of view of the development of the framework of ideas. And I think, actually, if you'd started from metaphysics, you'd have been able to go straight into the, uh, the heart of the issue and work out from there. Because if you start out from Aristotle's sort of four categories of causation, I know it's a bit obscure, but as I say, if you start from the metaphysical heart of it, it's easy to work out. He, um, he had notions of teleology in final cause and formal cause, but he also had notions of efficient cause and material cause. Now, that's what the modern sciences deal with. They deal with... Because from the 17th century, all teleology was concentrated into the power of God. So what happens is the disenchantment that Weber was recognising was the aftershadow of the change, if you like, in where the distribution of decision-making was in, in metaphysics. So that God is all-powerful. He's already arranged everything. So the only thing that people have to pay attention to is the material and the substantial causes. And that, of course, is the direction in which the whole of the, uh, both the physical sciences and, I might say, the social sciences have gone since. So that kind of disenchantment is actually a result of a shift in metaphysics which makes possible the sciences, which makes possible secularisation. Thanks very now, much. Sorry, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to... I would the, like to the, collect some more comments or questions, if possible. Yeah, but just, to, just yeah. to say, you're not... The real issue is what are the primary methods of symbolisation that are significant in the, a society at any specific time? And you're really talking about a change in those... Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to um, keep, collect one or more questions. Uh, gentleman in the back and lady here. Um, thank you. It strikes me as there's something peculiarly modern about the coexistence of magic and sorry, stand up, uh, magic and rational thought, um, the scientific. So in my research on the First World War, you'll have soldiers that will at once consider how the war will come to, the en come to an end, so thinking about alliance warfare, new technology, um, the economic power of the Allies, but in the next breath sometimes will refer to the dove of peace and to God bringing an end to war. So I wonder if you could maybe talk to the point that maybe there is a cultural inclination to fall back on the mysterious and the magical, even as we understand uh, the scientific and, quote, possibly the rational. Many thanks. And one more question from the lady here, please, and then we turn back to the panel. I was actually a bit surprised by your interpretation of magic because that could potentially open a door to also have, let's call it, alternative magics in the future. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Many thanks. So 
Would you like to respond or address some of these? I wouldn't mind. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start with the last one because uh, that's a fascinating question about, as it were, what is the future of magic? Um, one of the things actually that Wittgenstein thought was deeply characteristic of magic is that it doesn't progress. It doesn't have to. So he, he would, when he was thinking what's different between science and magic, because obviously Fraser was thinking they're basically the same kind of thing. One's just a bad way of doing what we do right. Um, if you then think they're different, then what kind of way should you characterize the difference? He said, he said something like, simple as it may seem, the basic difference is that magic doesn't progress and science does. And so the idea of the future of magic might suggest um, progress in the history of magic, and I think he'd deny that, and that actually what we're dealing with are, I mean, if you put it anthropologically, habits of human being that uh, are essentially ineliminable. They, it's about ways in which our efforts at understanding the world um, uh, bring us into spaces where what we have called magic remain, as it were, ubiquitous in our lives. And I suppose that relates to the second question about the falling back on the magical that we saw, that you saw in these uh, soldiers' behavior. I don't like that idea of falling back on the magical because that, that um, as it were, builds into the picture that, uh, an effort not to fall back because that would be, as it were, you know, we're doing so well, so well, oh, but we fall back. <laughs> and um, I, I don't think it is structures of falling back. And, and it is about trying to find uh, dimensions of meaning within uh, situations where, uh, as it were, a, a merely modern self-understanding can't get a grip. And in a way, that's the first question, is uh, how far uh, the history of Europe and the history of its... In involvement in the history of philosophy and metaphysics has landed, in us, in a, landed us in a place in which a sense of what we're doing in our lives, a sense of the meaning of our lives is lacking. And one of the dimensions of that is precisely the loss of any sense for a European today of a teleology of history, a sense that we're going somewhere which would give a ground and meaning to whatever it is we're doing. So that loss of meaning through eschatologies, you know, ends of things or uh, messianisms which say something is coming, leaves us just working, actually, in the kind of way uh, uh, Darian was talking about. We, modern subjects, what, what can they do? Well, they work. They work pretty well. <laughs> and they can be optimized to working conditions. And that's all you can say. And I think the challenge is to find uh, or recover for ourselves senses of meaning. Um, can I respond um, substantially out of my depth, probably, to the first question um, by asking if, if there is this rebalancing of, of um, ideas of, of causation, what precipitates that from the perspective of the, the questioner? Because I, I think I look at it from the other direction. You, you, you see the ideas and then try to work out what the consequences of those will be. But I, I'm picking up on a sense that there's another model that almost sits outside those explanations that you might want to, to explore. My sense is that um, the difficulty with modernity is that it's inherently complicated. And the First World War was a modern war which was 
caused by a multiplicity of factors and was prolonged by a multiplicity of factors. So even as one searches for an answer to the end of war, that is such a complicated answer that it's actually a much easier thing to do to fall... I, I don't mean to use the word fall back on because I know you don't like it, but to utilise your pre-existing beliefs to seek an answer which is immediate and much more satisfying. Um, even if you're not necessarily religious, it, it's much easier to comprehend. And I think that, to me, was part of it when I was reading these diaries and letters where they were using these two things um, alongside one another. And uh, that sense that these are not mutually exclusive categories absolutely (coughs) resonates with a lot of the work that's being done on on early modern religion and and belief and the interchangeability, not the falling back on, but just that sense of of whatever makes sense or works um, can become the the, the kind of prevailing model of of explanation. So cracking answer is really a a question for for whoever asked the first question from the audience, but I, I rather liked your response, so thank you. Uh, gentleman here. I'm just trying to see if... Paul Hudson, uh, retired from academic life. Uh, congratulations to the three, three... Sorry, can you hear me now? Yeah. Right. Congratulations to the three um, panellists trying to cover so much ground in ten minutes each. It's not enough. I have a very specific um, question. I think it's overwhelmingly directed to Professor Glendinning when you're referring to the work of um, Wittgenstein... Um, when I graduated, which was the best part of a hundred years ago, I tried to actually read um, Wittgenstein Tractatus. I read the first nine pages or so four times and got nowhere with it, but I remember one of my old professors of economics, who himself was an Austrian, said if you're reading something, in fact, that is not clear after one reading, then the philosopher has not thought through it. And as regards uh, Wittgenstein, he made the comment that um, about Piero Sraffa, the Italian economist, um, having a devastating effect. It's like having a tree with many branches and Piero Sraffa actually chopping off all the branches. So I'm just wondering, do you think really you, you yourself, you've tried to be very objective, uh, that Wittgenstein actually is really worth um, pursuing? <laughs> Could I just have a quick? Um, uh, yeah. Could I collect a second question and then give you time to gather ah. your thoughts <laughs> <laughs> um, from the lady behind, and then we will address them. Yeah. Hi, I'm Kofi. I'm working on sociology of finance, and uh, I'm just wondering how, uh, from a magic or from uh, the non-linearity of a modernization point of view, you look at the uh, recent rise in in the field of finance of uh, uh, this idea of uncertainty of there's something in the market that we just cannot know, cannot model, cannot comprehend. That's a really good question. (laughs) I think we would have time for one more question if there's one. Yeah, from the gentleman there. And then, yes. Um, talking about religion and modernization, I'm thinking about the situation of China. Uh, we don't encourage Christian or the worship of God. Uh, but uh, without that, people may worship other things like money and power. So can it be a way or a good approach to 
connect the society or the people with religion, and that can that help China to be uh, come in line with the Western civilization. Thank you. Thank you very much. Can I take, take up the uh, Wittgenstein challenge? Yeah. <laughs> First of all, I'm going to do a demonstration of what Sraffa did uh, that took the branches off Wittgenstein's tree. They were on a train, they were sitting down, so he wasn't standing up, but I'm going to stand up in a moment. But Wittgenstein was explaining what he thought was the kind of basic character of anything that's a proposition. So anything at all that makes sense will have this form, he called it, logical form. And Sraffa said... What's the logical form of this? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Wittgenstein said this simple Neapolitan gesture did indeed uh, take his wings off. Uh, that your friend, you and your uh, economist friend should have got to the end of the book um, because there Wittgenstein says whatever can be said can be said clearly and what cannot be said must be passed over in silence. Uh, I think it is a, 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 a it is a difficult book to read, but that doesn't mean that it is, as it were, unclear. One of the things about great works, and that undoubtedly is a great work, is that they're not immediately consumable. And so that idea that you, if you if you haven't got it when you're four pages in, you should give up on the book, I think, is a total error. Uh, it's only true of great books <laughs> that they are in this way something that lies ahead of you rather than being consumed and behind you, uh, and of course, who, who is to say what is a great book? But uh, it not being immediately digestible is not the mark of something great. So there was a question about uncertainty and a question about uh, yeah. belief. Yeah, I don't have anything to say about, about yeah. Wittgenstein in that regard. I mean, but uh, on the issue of uncertainty, I mean, I, I think that the suggestion is probably uh, quite an accurate one. I mean, and I, I like what Simon said a moment ago about magic being these habits of human being or ineliminable habits of human being and of course magic and magical thinking magical thought can be understood as a way in which we have human beings habitually deal with questions of uncertainty or of uncertainty um, and what I think is I mean so in that sense I, 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 th I guess I would I just simply agree but what I think is interesting in this regard also is the way that modern institutions these institutions that characterize modern Europe in the way that we all three of us have been discussing are built to accommodate certain kinds of uncertainties or certain kinds of informational asymmetry as well. And maybe there's a certain role in which magical thinking continues to provide a kind of a habit for dealing with uncertainty within that modern context. Now, I mean, for my interest, and this goes a little bit beyond your question, but actually has a lot to do with, I mean, your, your question was about financial, financial markets. And so, I mean, one of the things I'm particularly interested in, I don't have an answer to that, is what happens when sort of uncertainties that we've been dealing with for the better part of a few hundred years or uncertainties that we've built institutions around start to become less uncertain. So what happens when we start to accumulate data that starts to address some of these asymmetries that, in fact, we've structured institutions around? Um, I'm not sure what the answer to, what, what the answer to that is, and I'm not sure exactly how magic fits into that as well. Um, I work with a lot of data scientists who consider what they do a sort of magic as well. Uh, it's it's another way. I mean, it's it's another way of I wouldn't say it's magical thinking, but it's another way of developing 
let's say, strategies, developing tactics for dealing with uncertainties. Um, so that would be my that would be my sort of half response to your question, at least. Very much that leaves the question about belief. <laughs> the, 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 there are hints of that question um, sitting in in the hypothesis that underpins Brad Gregory's work on the unintended reformation, that, that where um, the fundamentals of religion and particularly God and the wider supernatural start to become more distant. So individuals and communities prioritize other forms, um, a sort of hope and aspiration and, and ambition that are often more to do um, with material objects or with, with prosperity or with that sense of, of superiority. But the, the thing that, that probably stuck out was that phrase at the end of the question about the connection between the European model of civilization and, and what's going on in the, the wider world. And I, I have a lot of respect for, the, um, for Brad Gregory's book, but I think one of its weaknesses that it, is that it's a study of the evolution of, of human ideas and beliefs primarily in the Protestant Atlantic world. It doesn't go into South America, it doesn't go into Africa, and it certainly doesn't go into to Middle Eastern or Far Eastern uh, religious and political structures and, and attitudes. Um, is long enough as it is, and, and, and probably one of those books that is quite hard to get into, but when you get to the end, the, there's a reward there. But as, as historians of, of these kinds of ideas and, and concerns, we do need to get used to the idea that the world outside our window is actually more geographically distant than we, than we think it is, and your, your comments were well made in that respect. Thank you. Well, at this point, it remains me to thank um, you for your questions and our speakers for a fascinating discussion and presentation. Many thanks. Thank